I love the electric vehicle. I haven't been to a petrol station in four months. That on its own is is refreshing. I mean, the, the, we get so used to the the routine of it of having to go and refill once a week, once a fortnight. I have not been to an elect, a petrol station. Hi, I'm Kaya Taylor, and this is Rewired, a show exploring the future of energy in Australia from Arena, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. This season, we're highlighting the transformers that are changing our energy grid. And today, we're speaking with Renata Egan. Renata is a professor at the University of New South Wales in the field of solar photovoltaics. She is also a co-founder of Solar Analytics, a service that allows households to monitor both their solar generation and energy usage in real time. Renata has been in the solar space since the 90s, and it was a desire to see practical applications of her skills that led her to renewables. Actually, the first work I did when I studied at Macquarie University in optoelectronics was looking at materials for light-emitting diodes. At the time, it wasn't possible to make a blue light-emitting diode. And if you didn't have blue, you couldn't do the full spectrum of colour. Um, And I did some really early work in that space and thought that the solution was both a long way away and we wouldn't see the technology deployed in Australia, or at least not developed in Australia. Um, And I was wrong on both counts because blue LEDs did get developed fairly quickly and there is an Australian company that's actually quite active in that space. But what my motivation was to get out into industry and to apply my skills to see outcomes in my lifetime and then there was just a really good synergy between the skills I had and a startup that was coming out of the University of New South Wales at the time called Pacific Solar. So they needed somebody who knew how to make the materials to make the solar cells. So that's how I got my first job. And it was a perfect match between, at the time, it was like solar is, Australia is the right place to be doing solar energy research. Um, I had the skills that I could bring to the to the project. So that's how I got into solar and that was in 1995, so it was quite a while ago. Since those early days, the industry has flourished with almost 3 million Australian homes now having rooftop solar. We have more rooftop solar than any other nation on earth. And for Renata, watching that change has been incredible. It has been absolutely amazing to see the technology change and transform. The problems that came up and that have been overcome uh, and the opportunities that have been created. It has literally been phenomenal. I mean, the pro- when I started, the price for solar modules was was like $12 to $15 a watt and now we're seeing it at $0.20 cents a watt. The orders of magnitude change and the scale of the opportunity has just grown phenomenally. So I had the good fortune of of seeing that technology from Pacific Solar go into manufacturing in Germany and then the industry transform as Chinese module, as investment went into China, into module manufacturing, which has literally transformed everything and it's been a great outcome. But it drove down the cost and made the silicon module technologies that we all see now super competitive. Uh, And that's literally transformed the industry and that's where all the momentum is now. So I've been working in that space for the last 10 or 15 years now, the silicon module technology space. 
And you mentioned before the problems that had to be overcome. I mean, nowadays we we talk a lot about a whole series of challenges in 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 I guess having so much solar on the grid, and um, we talk about I guess the integration. We talk a bit about the I guess the challenges around the technology itself, you know, like efficiencies and that kind of stuff. But what were some of the problems that you were facing when you came out in '95? So at the time, certainly price was the biggest problem, the price of modules and the technology, and that's largely been solved with improvements in efficiency and performance and investments in scale. And even now, we look at the challenges with materials supply to power a significant portion of the world's energy needs with solar panels. We need an awful lot of materials. And that's actually a good thing for Australia because we're producers of a lot of the materials that are important in this technology. But we've always looked at the, at the challenges with meeting demand with the materials that are available. So in the 1990s, the silicon that goes into the solar panels was sourced from waste silicon from the microelectronics industry. And there was a limit to how much of that um, waste material was low cost enough to be able to be put into modules. As it turned out, what happened was a whole new industry developed around producing silicon specifically for the solar industry. So that's so the problem was solved in a different way. We thought it would be solved with materials by reducing the amount of silicon being used, but what actually happened was a whole new industry developed around basically silicon, solar silicon. So that was one of the first challenges. Uh, there's been a challenge around glass. Even glass for solar modules is proving right now to be a little bit of a bottleneck. And we anticipate in the future a challenge around silver because silver is a big component of solar module technologies or solar panel technologies. And if we, we're already consuming somewhere between 10 and 20% of the world's silver. So we need to change the way we deliver the technology to make sure that we can grow another tenfold because we need to see another tenfold growth. So we have to address the problem with the use of silver. With the significant uptake of solar, there's been some questions raised about what happens when these panels reach the end of their life. Are we going to just throw them out? Or will we be able to find ways to recycle the panels and use them again? Module recycling is going to become a significant challenge and opportunity, but it's still a long way off yet because modules are expected to have a 20-year lifetime. And we're working on extending that and having them operate for way longer than 20 years. So it's whereas your mobile phone is designed for a two-year lifetime, solar panels are designed for a 20-year lifetime. But we are looking already at the processes around recycling, the opportunities around bringing the materials back into the supply chain. And those things will all be addressed in time for when the problem or the opportunity for returned modules comes up in significant volumes. The real challenge now is that there are volumes of modules being returned to be processed in recycling is not large enough to build an industry around. I want to talk to you about um, electrification and more broadly, there are different perspectives, right, on on how we're going to take um, homes, especially to to net zero or, or, or 
as close as equivalent. And so the converse, you know, the, the perspectives are around, is it electricity? Is it greener gas? Is, is it going to be hydrogen? I'm assuming that you're probably in favor of electrification. So if that is the case, why, why will it be electrification that will, that will take our homes to this point? So I'm already on that journey um, and trying to have a lived experience so that I can speak to it because I think what we need is some urgency and I would like to see a significant impact in the next 10 years and we have the technologies to deliver those changes in the next 10 years using electrification. We can't yet at significant scale do it with hydrogen. So that's my preference is to test and develop our capabilities to do it with the technologies we've already got. So in the last 12 months, and because because I'm informed and because I have, um, you know, an understanding of how it's all going to work and, and, and an interest in really understanding the experience with it, we have invested in an electric vehicle and we have added to it. So I have a, ten, a one kilowatt solar system on my roof that I installed in 2008 when it costs um, around $12,000 to put one kilowatt on. For $12,000 now, you would put on 12 kilowatts. So it gives you an indication of how much things have changed in that time frame. So we've also added um, another 5.5 kilowatts of solar and a battery. So we're starting to look into our own home about how much of our local of our energy needs we can meet, including with the electric vehicle, and how much we are still grid reliant on the grid. We still have uh, gas on the cooktop and gas hot water. So sometime in the next twelve months, I'll be shifting away from gas heating and cooking to electrification as well. So we'll, we're really just developing this whole experience over time to try and understand what the impact is on our personal, on our lives and our energy bills. Uh, I do think we are, this isn't, the opportunity is there and it will move really quickly that it's available for more and more people. And I think it's a really great point that you made, which is that all of these all of these resources, all of these assets that take to have a completely, you know, electrified home, they, they exist, they're available. What have you found to be perhaps most surprising about the transition for you? For me, the most exciting thing is the electric vehicle that's been transformational. I haven't been to a petrol station in four months. We get so used to the routines of the things we do, they're, they're filling up our tank of petrol once a week, once a fortnight, spending $100. In four months, we've put 4,000 kilometres on the car and I haven't been to a petrol station once and the I've learnt all about the electric vehicle network and the charging network. The most I've spent so far is in total for 4,000 kilometres is $30 on charging infrastructure. So it's phenomenal. Uh, and the vehicle itself is is uh, an MG. It's a, a moderate price point. It's not. I'd, I'd love to have gone with a Tesla. That will be my next electric vehicle, uh, if that's possible. But it's a it's a reasonably priced electric vehicle. And that was part of the experience too. Was not to go with with something that was realistically priced, uh, which also means that we're testing the normal experience of people. It's not a high end car. Uh, and with the money we're saving in 
not paying fuel costs easily covers a good part of the cost of the car itself. Uh, the other thing that's surprising that we've learnt in the battery solar combination of the new investment is um, because we did it just going into winter was that the we, we actually were at the low point of solar generation um, through our first experience and a high point in energy consumption because we were using reverse cycle air conditioning for heating. Uh, and it's clear that over winter we're more reliant on the grid than we would like to be and we know that over summer we're going to have surplus. So we're looking, we're learning about this balance between how much you can reasonably generate for yourself over winter and how much we'll have in excess over summer. What I find so fascinating about this, Renata, is that one of the things, you know, in your impressive career is that you co-founded a company that was around, you know, monitoring solar usage. So the company, obviously, Solar Analytics, um, and a big part of it was around, I guess, the user experience of understanding lived experience with 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 having solar and, and being able to check on it and, and get information on it. So I guess I'd love to hear a little bit about the journey from starting solar analytics and having that goal in mind to now doing your own electrification. What's it been like? As I've followed that journey for um, solar technologies, watching become the hardware itself become more and more competitive in pricing and seeing a lot of the technology problems being solved, I could see that the next challenge was in the consumer experience, basically, bringing people along on the journey uh, of uh, increasing the solar uptake and then ultimately of electrifying everything. When we started Solar Analytics back in, in around 2014, 2015, lots of people had already put solar on their rooftops, but very few people understood what was going on. Very few people even knew if their solar was working properly, other than that they would get an electricity bill once a quarter, and most people struggle to understand their electricity bill at the best of times, but to have an, another line item in there in solar was just not enough information for them. So solar analytics was designed to give solar homeowners information about what was happening on their rooftops, um, how they were consuming energy in the home, how to make the most of the solar that they were producing, and if something was wrong, how to find out what was wrong or to be told what was wrong and what to do about it. So it was really connecting people with the investment they made and giving them confidence in them in it and positive feedback about the about their engagement with solar and with energy. That's now transformed. Um, there's 30,000 customers or so who are engaging with us in solar analytics who have the monitoring and have the information. We help them understand how big a battery they might be able to put on if they wanted to to invest further or how much more solar they could put on to offset the energy consumption within their own homes. I think that the um, that consumer experience is going to become more and more important as we um, as we transition to, to more and more electrification, as more electric vehicles come on board, as more solar uh, is installed and more batteries are being used. We're really going to have to, as an industry, we're going to really have to connect with the end consumer better. Having been in the solar industry for quite some time now and, and, and talking through the experiences you have of, of living with solar as well, what are your thoughts around the solar feed-in tariff conversation at the moment? Are you concerned about 
them changing in a way that's going to, you know, mean that people won't be as interested in, in buying anymore? Feed-in tariffs have been changing and adapting over time as, and it reflects both the price of the technology and the challenges with connecting to the grid. Solar is now so cheap that if you can put it on your roof, you're mad if you don't. (laughs) And the result of that is that there is now in some parts of Australia in some times of the day when there is more solar than the grid can cope with. And the grid operators have a couple of choices to manage that. One of them is to tell people they can't put solar on their roof at all. The other is to constrain how much solar they can put on their roof, and that's been happening. Both of those things have been happening already. Then there's two other options. One is to drive demand so that people are encouraged to use the solar energy in the middle of the day or to shift that energy generation and store it in a battery for later. And that's what they're trying to do and establish um, systems that will allow more people to continue to put solar on their roof by changing the incentives of the price that people get paid for connecting and contributing excess solar to the grid. So I actually think that that we need these changes. I don't know if we've actually got it exactly right yet, but to be honest, that's still a negotiation that has to happen anyway, that individual network level. But you can imagine a situation where people are either incentivized to consume electricity in the middle of the day when there's too much solar because the price of electricity will drop and they will people who've put solar on their rooftop will be incentivized to put on batteries and shift the energy store the energy and then use it later in the day again by pricing and that's what the regulator is trying to establish processes which will allow these price signals to inform decisions and it really shouldn't given that solar is so cheap if you're consuming it at home it's really only the it's really the only way to go, I don't think it will put people off investing, provided we can communicate the benefit to people properly. And just so that our listeners are clear, when you talk about price signals, are there particular signals that come to mind for you? It's really time of use tariffs. So it's the, the prices that people pay. Many people have a flat rate that they pay for their electricity, but most people have a, the possibility of choosing Most people are familiar with the um, off-peak hot water option, which is an example of of trying to incentivize people to use electricity at a particular time when there's there's too much of it, basically. What will happen is that the price of electricity in the middle of the day will be cheap and the price of electricity in the early afternoons and in the mornings when when there's a lot of demand for power and not a lot of generation from solar, the price at those points will be higher. So it's really just incentivizes um, people to use or to store energy. From these changes, Renata, and with these different price signals, with the decreases in in feed-in tariffs, do you think that people are now 
you know, do you think that the incentives have changed in order to really think about storage? Do you think whether it's a, a battery or, or an EV charger, charging station rather, do you think that these are now a bit more compelling with the changing feed-in tariffs? The price of batteries is still not super competitive. Um, most people who are investing in batteries at the moment are doing so as early adopters. It won't be long before the price of batteries come down enough for it to be really competitive, but it's not there yet. At the moment, it just still makes sense to use the grid as your vehicle for storage um, and to draw on the grid when you need it and you're not generating energy yourself. I really like how you frame that, which was to to, to use the grid for storage, so to speak, and to, to draw on as you need it, because I guess, you know, there is a cost to that, right? Yeah, there is. And that we're, we're actually wholly reliant on the grid and we should be ready to support it also because, it, you know, it's the grid that keeps our hospitals and our trains and our traffic lights operating. As a community, um, we can't all afford to go off grid. That doesn't make sense. Uh, not only that, but it's my experience too with, with the solar and batteries um, over winter <laughs> is that we need the grid. If I have to invest with enough solar and batteries to take my home off the grid completely, I would need to invest five times as much as what I've done because I have to be able to manage three cool, dark winter days in a row. And it it just doesn't make financial sense. Ultimately, we need the grid. We talk a lot on this show about the direction we're heading with renewables. That's our focus at Arena. But it's the lived experience of people who are making the journey that often inspire other consumers to get started. As someone who has been actively electrifying her house for over a decade, Renata is leading the charge. And throughout this journey, she's found that when she talks about her experience, others do take notice. For instance, with the electric vehicles, there's really only a small part of the population that is already going down this journey. It's actually really important. Um, And so even at the university with the people who are really engaged and interested in this space, that personal experience of actually having an electric vehicle and making the decisions about uh, when you're going to charge it, how you're going to charge it, the challenges or the opportunities, um, it's really interesting. So I had expected before I invested in the car that I would be like my phone I would come home and I would be engaged with the car in the in a way, same way that I engage with my phone. Whereas I come home at the end of the day and I plug it in. I thought I would do the same thing with the car, but it turns out I don't do that at all. The car has a 250 kilometer charge on the battery. Um, and I plug it in for a couple of hours once a week. And typically I will do that either at work or while I'm shopping. <laughs> um, and that's all I need each week and I very rarely plug the car in at home and I think people will need to understand that the for instance that opportunity to literally plug the car in while you go shopping um, and never needing to charge at home is a real possibility if you only do 100 kilometers a week that's all you need to do. Thanks to Renata Egan for joining us from lockdown for this episode. Rewired is brought to you by ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, working to support Australia's energy transition. This episode was hosted by me, Kaya Taylor, with production and scripting from the team at Lawson Media. 
If you've enjoyed the conversation and want to learn more about the Transformers working to change our energy grid or the projects that Arena is funding, you can find out more on our website, arena.gov.au. I'll speak to you again soon.